This podcast is brought to you by the College of Nursing at Brigham Young University. For more information about its programs, faculty, students, or alumni events, please visit nursing.byu.edu. Have you ever been to a party and someone suggests playing a game like charades? If you're like me, you don't like charades. Trying to guess what other individuals are trying to say isn't always fun and usually just ends in frustration and maybe some humor every once in a while. We'll apply this to cancer communication in today's show. Stay tuned. Hey everyone, I'm Eliza Joy. And I'm Ryan Larson. Together we will explore nursing careers and professional insights. With exclusive interviews for nurses working in jobs that you want to know about. Transferring info from one nurse to another. This is the College Handoff. Charades is a word-guessing game requiring participants to mime their hints without using spoken words. By the end of each round, most individuals are frustrated and just wish someone would tell them the answer. On today's show, we discuss a similar issue in sharing medical information. Often, once someone is diagnosed with a disease like cancer, they are instructed to share that information with their family. Their family members can also seek medical help. Unfortunately, as in the case with the party game, the results and communication are not always accurate. Today, we'll hear from Dr. Deborah Himes and her research assistant, Sarah Welty, on their research for direct disclosure of cancer communication and ways this study could fix the broken form of sharing facts in the healthcare center. Let's get started. So today in studio, we have Dr. Deborah Himes and Sarah Welty. Uh, welcome to the show. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. So Deborah, we wanted to start our interview by asking if you could share an overview of your breast cancer communication research. Sure, I'd be happy to do that. We have been looking at uh, genetic information in particular and how it's shared and understood among family members. What led you into that specific kind of research? When I went through my PhD program, of course, you have to select an area of research emphasis. And one thing that I was really interested in is uh, genetic risk within families. So that's where I ended up. But uh, as a women's health nurse practitioner, I would take care of patients sometimes who had a sister or a mother who'd had breast cancer or ovarian cancer, or maybe they'd had genetic testing, but they, they couldn't remember. And they, they couldn't remember what age it was, specifically what kind of cancer it was, what kind of test they had, you know, and they'd say to me, well, can, can I get tested? And um, I, when I went through my Ph.D. program, I took a lot of coursework to bolster my knowledge on genomics. And uh, in fact, I took the uh, cancer count, genetic counseling course with the genetic counselors and I learned how much information goes into collecting a family health history and all the prep work for um, preparing someone for a test and post-test counseling. And, and I realized that these patients that I was caring for who had very seemingly very little information had relatives who had been given an enormous amount of information. And, and I recognized that even there was software uh, the genetic counselor could simply click on a different person in the family tree 
and come up with a lifetime risk. That would have been tremendously beneficial for me to know, do, does this person meet the threshold that I should be offering her annual breast MRI in addition to mammography? Um, and, and I was a little bit in the dark. So I, I got to thinking there, there has to be a better way. We have to consider genetic information to be family information. And there are a lot of ethical issues to consider with that. Of course, there's privacy concerns. That could be a whole podcast in and of itself. Um, I just throw that out there so you don't think I'm unaware of it. Um, but I, I think that think that we can do better than we're doing. And I really do hope that the work that we're doing here is going to lead to changing the world and, and changing the way that, um, that families are cared for who have genetic risk, not just for cancer, um, for any kind of genetic abnormalities. I'm sure many students don't know that there's a cancer research center here on campus. Can you explain the role of the Simmons Center for Cancer Research at BYU? Yeah, the Simmons Center for Cancer Research is a great source for um, researchers and students alike to get connected. The, um, the, the research center accepts donations from um, community members and alumni who are interested in promoting cancer research. And then they um, help students and faculty get together and um, work as teams. It, it's been a really rewarding experience to work with the SCCR. Many, many of the Simmons Center fellowships require that you have a existing relationship with a person who is researching in cancer. And um, most of them require that you write a proposal. So this isn't something that a student would just hop online and fill out their own proposal. They need to already have that mentoring relationship and uh, they need to have the full support of the faculty member. But there are full-time summer only fellowships and then there are year-round fellowships and a lot of great opportunities for students. Um, there are also off-campus fellowships that are available um, and our nursing students have gone every year since they started since they started doing um, one particular fellowship. So I read an article that discussed some of your research, and you found that when patients convey what their doctors tell them to tell their family members, their family members are more likely to understand what the risks are and take the necessary precautions. Can you talk a little bit about that? Sure, that's true. If, uh, if someone who has had a cancer and had a genetic workup to figure out uh, the risk for family members is told hey, your family member has some risk and they need some information shared with them. Uh, family members are a lot more likely to understand their own risk if, if they've been told. And I, I guess that's common sense, right? But the difficult thing is that a lot of family members don't get told. And uh, some prior research has broken down what is said. And some of the information that's passed along is actually incorrect. So one of the things that we're hoping to do is find a better way to share this vital information within families, to make sure that everyone has the very best information possible to make decisions about their own health and prevention. What are some important ways to help people understand their risk besides a family member sharing their limited knowledge? Um, understanding your family history is a very basic step. And 
family history is important, not just in terms of who has had breast cancer specifically, but other related cancers. A lot of the cancer syndromes may genetically predispose you for um, a variety of types. So where somebody may key into the breast only, uh, they might disregard a family member who has had ovarian cancer, malignant melanoma, which is a skin cancer, and prostate cancer can be part of the makeup. Some of the other breast cancer syndromes uh, are associated with childhood cancers like sarcomas or brain tumors that aren't even cancerous. So I think a very basic place to start is understanding a, uh, a family history. But in the setting where an individual has had a genetic workup and had genetic testing, we try to have family members who are at risk also come in and get their own uh, risk analysis and genetic testing if it's indicated. So November is Family Health History Month. And with Thanksgiving coming up, it's a good time to talk about important family health issues. How can someone get that conversation started? Because it can be weird to go up to someone and say, I know this is a risk in our family. Let's talk about it. <laughs> well, sometimes that's what gets the conversation started. You know, you say, uh, wow, we're all together and it's great to be here. Um, I've heard you could even use that line. I've heard that the Surgeon General declared November as Family Health History Month. Um, why don't we update our family health history? And it really is beneficial for people to know what runs in the family. Uh, besides knowing what diseases or cancers, it's important to know ages of onset. And um, if, if anyone happened to pass away, ages of, of death are important to understand when looking at the family history. Hey friends, did you miss hearing Associate Dean Dr. Julie Valentine give the university's devotional address? Don't worry, you can still hear her message on understanding your role and noble responsibility for doing good by visiting speeches.byu.edu. Um, so now I want to turn to Sarah. Um, Sarah, you're a research assistant for Dr. Himes. Can you tell us how you're involved with her projects and what it is that you do? Yeah, so I actually have been a research assistant for a couple of years and most recently with Dr. Himes. So as a research assistant, essentially, you help the nitty gritty work of the research project. Um, and so with Dr. Himes, you know, she had a very clear vision of what she wanted for this project. She's like, I really want to look at how we communicate um, hereditary cancer risk to these families. And then you know, as a team, we'll go through the different steps of our project. For example, this was a systematic literature review. So we go through a bunch of different articles related to the topic. Um, and as a research assistant, what we do with that is we go in, um, we help execute some of the keyword searches. We can screen through the articles to see if they match our criteria. Um, we do a lot of data gathering um, and extraction. So you're really kind of the meat and bones of a research project, you're um, really getting in there and doing the work. Whereas like with Dr. Himes, she's a great leader and um, can help clarify certain tasks or the direction we want to take the research. And so it's really great experience as a student to have that. I think it's really valuable, especially going into the nursing field, because we do have some research classes. However, I think being a research assistant really 
allows you to grow and understand what research is so that you can apply it when you're a nurse and be able to go and look at articles and say, oh, you know, I know what this is talking about. And now I can apply that to my patients and help them, um, which I think is largely left up to the doctors out there. <laughs> so it's a really um, it's an amazing position to have and to be able to grow um, has been a great opportunity for me. Sometimes students think being involved in faculty research is making copies or filing papers, but you just told us that you're really involved in the whole process. Yeah. And if I can even add on to that, um, you know, each professor or project you work on will be completely different. Um, I used to work with Dr. Beckstrand, who is um, an ICU nurse, and we were helping a graduate student with one of her projects that looked at um, how to looking at critical access hospitals, which were these small, tiny rural hospitals out in remote areas. And I actually went on a little trip <laughs> with the graduate student. And so it can really take you on many different avenues and um, give you a lot of different skills, like working with spreadsheets. It can help you learn how to interview people, how to transcribe interviews and gather data. So there's a lot of different things that you end up doing. How did you get involved in doing research with BYU nursing faculty? Yeah, so as a student, I think, especially with the nursing program, it can be hard to find jobs that are suited to your classes and around your schedule, especially with the 12 hour clinicals that we do here. So um, I actually had a sister who used to do research when she was at BYU. And so I thought, hey, maybe that's something that I could do as a student. Um, and so the way that I found out about it was I went onto the College of Nursing website uh, and one of the faculty links shows um, all the faculty members and their different research disciplines. And there was a little column um, next to these uh, faculty names that showed if they were looking for research assistance. So I went ahead and emailed a bunch of them and said, hey, you know, I'm looking for a position and I'd really love to be involved with research. and. That's how I initially got started. And then with this particular project in Dr. Himes, she actually reached out to um, a number of students and um, asked if we would be interested in helping write a proposal for the Simmons uh, Center of Cancer Research. So there's a variety of ways you can get involved. I think even just, you know, walking up to someone and saying, hey, you know, what are you involved with is a great idea. So how did you become involved with the SCCR? Yeah. So as a student, like I was saying, Dr. Himes uh, reached out and said, hey, I'm doing this big project and I would love to work through the SCCR um, and their fellowships. So a fellowship, um, I did the spring and summer fellowship here on campus with Dr. Himes. So we together wrote a proposal and said, hey, you know, this is what we're looking at doing with our research. And then we send it in and they can accept it or, or not. And they let you know. Um, what they expect from you. Like we have these weekly meetings with a bunch of different students, undergraduates, graduates, and different faculty members. We share what's going on with our different projects and we'll have lectures um, from the faculty. So you get a lot of interdisciplinary exposure. So, you know, I've worked with PhD students who are doing molecular biology, which is something completely over my head. <laughs> um, but it's amazing to see what they're able to do and see how everyone fits into this um, battle against cancer. And so once our proposal got accepted by them, we went ahead and were able to receive that funding. And then I came in 
you know, for 40 hours a week for like 16 weeks. And um, we were able to just go and push through our systematic review. Is that mainly how you spent your summer um, during 2021? (laughs) Yes. And thankfully I had um, another student who was with me. I don't know if I would have made it without her. So, yeah. So the College of Nursing funded Ellie Pebbles and both Ellie and Sarah worked 40 hours a week for 14 weeks. And just to give you a sense of some of the things that they did, um, I have here our list, which is called our Prisma Diagram. So in a systematic review, you enter your search terms and you pull back all articles that may uh, match, right? And so after we removed duplicates, we had a total of 9,313 studies that needed to have an abstract read to see if they met inclusion or exclusion criteria. So we, we did have a couple other students come in and help with some abstracts and we had a couple of faculty, but, but primarily two people read those 9,313 abstracts. And then uh, out of those, there were 83 that we felt met our inclusion criteria and we needed to read the full text. And um, ultimately we determined that 63 studies would be included. So Moving on, we need to now synthesize and summarize those 62 studies and how they answer our our research questions. But this is really important. Systematic reviews are the foundation for future research. Before you as a researcher undertake to try a new method or a new intervention, you really need to know what's been tried before, right? You don't want to repeat things that don't work. You don't want to, you want to build, yeah? And um, what we're looking at are new ways of communicating with family members at risk and even the primary care providers who take care of them. And um, one of our research questions we got down to, was it eight or nine on our eight? We found eight studies that maybe someone has tried this one method that we're interested in. So um, there, there would be no way to find those eight studies. It's like a needle in a haystack unless you systematically went through every single thing. So yeah, Ellie and Sarah, um, they did the lion's share of work this summer. This would not have been possible without the support of the Simmons Center and the College of Nursing in, in funding that level of support to get this done. Is research something you're going to want to continue throughout your time here at BYU and your future career? Yes, I would love to continue doing research. Um, That can take many different forms, Um, especially being a nurse, for example, um, you know, with different patient loads and quality improvement projects, whatnot. You really need to have the ability to go looking at official research manuscripts and say, okay, how do I make sense of this? What does this mean for my practice and um, my team's practice? I think that's especially prevalent right now with COVID. We see there's a lot of conflicting ideas and opinions. And so being able to go straight to the science and say, okay, you know, this is what's going on. And now I can be an advocate for my patients, for my family even. Um, that's a really powerful thing. So I think research will definitely continue to be um, a big part of my life. Um, Whether it's as a nurse or down the road um, as a nurse practitioner, I think um, it's a great skill to hang on to. And I would highly recommend that everyone looks into becoming more research literate. So I want to swap back to Dr. Himes for this last question. 
Um, if someone is interested in getting involved in research, what are some ways that they can begin to do that? I would advise any students interested in research to absolutely get involved. Um, if it's not with me, then with someone. Um, I think that students who get involved with uh extracurricular projects, whether it's serving in the SNA or participating in research, have much richer college experience. And I think students who are fortunate enough to work in a research lab learn things that are not covered in the typical curriculum. And I'm so, so grateful to have had the opportunity to um, mentor a couple of outstanding students. I say a couple. I had I had two primary students with me over the summer, um, but there were many others who worked in a part-time capacity on this research also. And um, so tips I have for students who are interested in getting involved in research, if you know a faculty member who is doing research, make an appointment. Go sit down and talk with them about what they're doing. Um, find out if there's a way that you can get involved. Um, sometimes I don't even have a particular need at a moment, but um, someone is showing initiative and they come and share with me their particular reasons or interests and um, I can find a way to make some room sometimes. So I, I love the opportunity to work with students. It's great. Well, Dr. Himes and Sarah, we've come to the end of our time, but we want to thank you both for coming on the show to talk to us about your research project and the experiences you've had with it. Thank you for having us. It's been a pleasure. The analogy of playing party games like charades or even telephone really illustrates how quickly a message can be altered in a relatively short time. Um, I love Dr. Himes' suggestion that information can be improved if there are more efficient ways for one provider or clinician to share information with another one directly, especially when communicating about cancer and genetic details. Absolutely. I think there's lots of good things that can come of letting physicians talk to each other directly in safe ways that also protect the patient's information. I was also really impressed with Sarah's involvement in the project. It's really cool to see students making money and doing the things that they're passionate about in the real world. No doubt. And I think that was also a great reminder for us to all get familiar with our own family medical history um, so that we can understand our own risks and the risks of those we love. Absolutely. We also want to wrap up this episode giving some self-praise. The BYU College of Nursing recently received not one, but two Golden Spike Awards from the Utah Chapter of Public Relations Society of America for this podcast. Our podcast series earned recognition for social media in the communication tactics and pandemic communications categories. We also want to take some time to thank our Dean, Dr. Jane Lasseter, for all her support in making this podcast possible. We also should mention Adia, Corbin, and Zach, who were instrumental in their work for the very first season of this podcast. We also should thank Donovan, the show's editor and producer, Jeff as the executive producer, and of course, all of you, our amazing listeners. Absolutely. We love providing this podcast for you every week. Don't forget to tune in every Tuesday, wherever you listen to your podcasts. We'll see you guys there. 